thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arnie. Hello, Kat. Hello, and this week, with Bonfire Night only a few days away, we take a quick fire look at the science behind fireworks. Plus, we find out whether wind farms could be made more efficient just by laying them out differently. And I'm here live at the UK's National Cancer Research Institute conference to hear about the latest breakthroughs in combating and diagnosing cancer, including a new way to track how the disease is behaving just by studying a blood sample. We have a way of looking in blood and understanding what's going wrong in the cancer and potentially working out how big the cancer is or how well your treatment is working by quantifying how much of these faulty instructions are floating around. And on the subject of cancer, our quiz this week. Can you tell us what tree is proving very helpful for doctors trying to treat cancers? If you would like to get in touch with the programme with any thoughts, comments or feedback or answers, then you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, and you can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. And let's kick off with a look at what's been making science headlines this week. Cat, waggy dog story. It certainly is. Are you a dog person, Chris? I am. I've had a succession of dogs across my life. I love dogs. Oh, I love dogs too. And now this is a great piece of research about dogs. Because scientists have discovered that the direction in which a dog wags its tail tells other dogs what it's thinking. And that's according to new research published in the journal Current Biology. Now, animal behaviour researchers already know that tail wagging isn't just a back and forth affair. The wag can be biased towards either the right or the left. But a closer look shows that a bias to the left or the right may reveal what a dog's actually thinking. I mean, Maybe more than just, I love you, feed me, take me for a walk. Anyway, dogs watching the approach of their owners and other dogs they're friendly with, they tend to wag their tails more rightwards. But dogs that are cautious, then maybe feel threatened by a larger dog, they tend to wag more to the left. But until now, it wasn't really clear whether the dogs themselves are sensitive to the wagging signals of other dogs. So it might just be convenient for humans, but uh, we've no evidence that the dogs themselves could respond to and interpret what the other dog was exactly. doing wag-wise. Maybe they just do it, but it doesn't mean anything. Now, Italian scientists led by Marcello Sinascalci studied 43 domestic dogs, both males and females, from a range of breeds, and he showed them videos of unfamiliar dogs with either left wags or right wags. Now, the team monitored the dogs' behaviours and their heart rates while the pooches were watching these movies to see how stressed they became. And 
when they watched the tails wagging to the left, they found the animals became significantly more stressed. Their heart rates went up about 200 beats a minute. But pictures of non-wagging dogs produced a smaller increase, about 150 beats a minute, and rightward wagging dogs, much less, about 140. Now, the team also did the experiment with dog-shaped silhouettes because they wanted to know, is this just because they're seeing something else in the dogs that humans can't see? And they got the same results. Now, the researchers think that this shows that domestic dogs can actually read communication cues from the tail wags of other dogs. And they think it happens because the left half of the brain, which controls movements on the right side of the body, they think this might control a region that's somehow specialised for friendly behaviour, while the right side of the brain, which controls the left side of the body, might contain a region that sort of recognises retreat behaviour or something like that. So maybe there's something to do with social behaviour and the evolution of the left and right sides of the brain. And also, if you want to know whether Fido loves you, you should check out his tail. I wonder then if other social species, including dogs' relatives, wolves, will behave the same way. And this is interesting because it sort of says that the dogs can put themselves into the shoes, or paws perhaps, of of the other dog, doesn't it? It it means they can interpret what the other animal is thinking, which has always been something we've been slightly sceptical about. Well, if you want to put a wolf in front of a video, be my guest. (laughs) Thank you very much, Kat. Well, now for a story which is completely out of this world. Scientists are saying this week they've discovered what they describe as the smallest exoplanet, in other words, planet which is in another system other than around our sun, which has yet been discovered and for which the mass and the radius are known. In other words, they have been able to measure and weigh a planet which is not much bigger than the Earth orbiting a distant star. There are two papers in the journal Nature this week, one from uh, Europe, Francisco Pep from the University of Geneva, and also Andrew Howard and his team there at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. They've independently both described this planet orbiting the star, which is called Kepler-78, and produced this mass measurement for it. This extraordinary piece of research shows that a planet which is about the same size as the Earth, it's only about 1.2 times the radius actually, so it's slightly bigger but almost the same, and it weighs about 1.86 times as much as the Earth does. And that means they can tell you that it's got a composition of roughly 20% iron, 80% rock, and the density 5.5 grams per centimetre cubed, which is almost the same as the Earth. So we found a planet basically around a another star which is almost analogous to the earth but the differences sort of stop there because this planet's 3000 degrees c and the reason for that is it orbits its star about a hundred times closer in than the earth does they don't really know how it got there or why it's so close in but this means the surface is at a blistering 3000 degrees c but what it does show is that the techniques we've now got to detect extrasolar planets can be pushed right down to very tiny worlds on par with the Earth, which means we can now widen our search and start looking for Earth-like planets the right distance from their star in order to try to find places that are almost a home from home for us. How did these researchers do this? Well, they were looking at the light coming from this Kepler-78 distant star, which is only about half a billion years old, actually. It's quite a young star, really, so it's more the Justin Bieber than the Tina Turner of the star world. And what they find is that because this planet, even though it's very small, is going around so close to the star... As it goes round, its gravity stretches the surface of the star a little bit, in the same way that the moon pulls water on the Earth's surface towards it and gives us tides. The planet goes round the star, pulls the surface of the star towards it very slightly, and this has the effect of stretching the light, which is coming from the star, 
out a little bit when the planet's around the back and then squeezing it when the planet is around the front of the star relative to us. And this alters the colour of the light coming towards us very subtly, but it does it every eight and a half hours because this planet goes whizzing round because it's so close in once every eight and a half hours. So its year is only eight and a half hours long. And that enabled them to work out basically what this planet's made of and what it weighs because they know how much the star weighs. Isn't that extraordinary? It's absolutely mind-bending. I find astrophysics incredible. It's so far away. How did you work that one out? Um, But looking up into the night sky at this time of year, you might want to remember, remember the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason and plot. So just in time for bonfire night, here is your quickfire science on gunpowder and fireworks with Kate Lamble and Simon Bishop. It's often said that the Chinese invented gunpowder about 2,000 years ago. The first firecracker was a gunpowder-filled bamboo stick. The recipe for gunpowder was perfected in Europe in 1560, and it's remained mostly unchanged ever since. To make a firework, you need five ingredients, an oxidizer, a reducing agent, regulators, binders and colorants. Oxidizers are molecules that split apart to release oxygen. They are typically metals combined with nitrogen or chlorine. The released oxygen is then used to burn a fuel called a reducing agent. This burning produces hot gases, usually sulphur dioxide and carbon dioxide. The oxidant in gunpowder is potassium nitrate, which releases oxygen to help burn sulphur and charcoal. Gases then build up inside a container, and when they are suddenly released, boom! In fireworks, these gases are pushed down towards the ground, firing the rocket up into the air instead of causing an explosion. There's then a second compartment full of gunpowder, oxidants and chemicals that give out coloured light. The third crucial ingredient is a regulating chemical, which speeds up or slows down the reaction depending on the desired effect. Sparklers need to burn quickly, for example, and the gases push out small lumps of burning iron or titanium, creating the sparks. Fireworks use everything from metal powders to cornmeal as regulators. Binder chemicals hold everything together. In sparklers, common binders are sugar or food glazes dampened with water or even alcohol. To create light, fireworks are packed with metal salts. Different metals burn with different colours. Burning aluminium will give white light, oranges come from calcium, and green and blue colours come from burning copper. It's all of these ingredients that come together to make firework displays so exciting, but the world record for the most fireworks launched within 30 seconds might take some beating. In 2010 in the Philippines, it took just 17 seconds to launch nearly 126,000 rockets. Now that's what I call a big bang. That's Kate Lamble and Simon Bishop. We hope you have an amazing bonfire night this year, but do remember to stay safe. Always read the instructions on a firework set and remember to stay well back and never go back to a lit firework. And you can get hold of all our quickfire science episodes as their own podcasts. They're on our website at nakedscientist.com slash quickfirescience. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. We're asking you, what tree is helping doctors to treat cancers? Bernie's speculating it may be the beech tree. Not quite Bernie, but keep your speculations coming in. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientists. Wind farms now, and driving through the countryside, you often see huge grids of wind turbines dotted across the fields. But does it actually matter how we lay them out. Christina Archer is from the University of Delaware and she's been studying how air flows through wind farms in order to try and answer this question. Hello, Christina. Hello. 
First of all, what sorts of improvements could we make then by changing the way that we format where the windmills are in these aggregations of wind farms? Well, my research found some staggering uh, results, actually, if I can make this joke. You can actually improve the performance of a wind farm by 13 to 33 percent if you place your turbines in a staggered arrangement. And what I mean by that is it's easier to describe if you think about yourself at a movie theater and you want to have, you know, a good vision of the screen. And, of course, you don't want to have a person sitting right in front of you. And so the way turbines are often arranged are kind of like the seats in a theater. They're, like, aligned with one another, which is not very smart, because if you want to look at the screen, you will like the person in front of you to not be just exactly in front of you, but slightly staggered. Why do you think that people chose to put them in the theatre arrangement when they didn't really have to do that? Was that just our obsession with kind of order? (laughs) Maybe it is. If you have an event in your yard, say a wedding or something, you will see that the natural instinct of us humans is to make things lined up. It's just easier, you know, so it's very understandable. (laughs) But the numbers you're suggesting of between 13 and 30% improvement in the productivity of a wind farm, those are enormous numbers. So how did you do this and why did you begin looking at this? First of all, the ultimate goal is to try to reduce the cost of wind energy. Wind energy is already relatively cheap compared to all the other renewable energy sources, possibly the cheapest. But the designs of turbines are already very good. The blades are optimized. The airfoils are great. They're even beautiful at this point. So there's not really that much you can do with the design of turbines to make them even more productive. They're already pretty much as efficient as it gets. And so if you want to reduce the cost of wind energy, you have to act on something else. And what I was interested in is can we place them in such a way that the wakes that the turbines generate, and you can think of a wake as turbulent eddies, once that wake hits the next turbine, obviously it impacts its productivity. So you don't want these wakes to interfere too much with the turbines that are downstream. So you're saying instead of the view in the cinema being occluded (laughs) by the head of the person in front, you don't want dirty air, which is all messed up, full of turbulence, hitting the turbine behind. You want to minimise that effect. So how did you actually do that? How did you try and work out what the effect was and how best to place them? I used a very sophisticated simulator. This is a computer code that tries to resolve the equations of motion of the atmosphere. Very fancy terms to say I'm trying to basically predict what the wind will be in all the points, millions of them, in a wind farm. So you have to imagine like a cube that includes the entire farm, and I'm trying to predict exactly what the wind speed, what the temperature, what the pressure will be at all these million points. And I have to include, obviously, the presence of the turbines in this volume, the fact that they rotate, and the fact that the turbulence generated by a turbine can impact the following one. You must have had a very powerful computer to do that. 
Absolutely. Actually, it's not even powerful enough. I would like more power. If any of the listeners have some kind of a super duper, even more powerful system, please let me know. Right now I'm using a high performance computer cluster with over 200 parallel processors and it's still going to take me about two months per simulation. So You're going to have to open a few wind very... farms to power that, aren't you? Um, so before we yeah. finish, could you just tell us, how have you actually tested this and validated it? Do we know that this isn't just the product of some computer time, that it really applies to the real world? Yes, we have data from existing wind farms, so I can definitely access those, and that's in my list of things to do. The tools I'm using right now, these simulators, are more useful when you're planning for a future farm. You don't have data because it's a prediction. And so I'm trying to tune my model so that it works very well with existing farms and so that I can use it now and simulate conditions in other locations for future times and so on so that we can build better wind farms and format them better in future. Christina, thank you very much. That's Christina Archer. She's from the University of Delaware, and she published that work in the journal Geophysical Research Letters just recently. There you go, Kat. Now you know where you've got to put your wind turbines when you open your own wind farm. (laughs) Exactly. I put them everywhere. But given that I'm at the UK's biggest cancer conference this week, I noticed a really important cancer story in the news, and it's about cancer chromosomes. Now, a new study from scientists at Harvard Medical School has revealed a new understanding of how cancers might develop and they published their results in the journal Cell. Now the story actually starts 100 years ago when biologists looking at cancer cells down the microscope they noticed that chromosomes, these are the long strings of DNA in our cells, they were unusual in cancer cells with cells often having the wrong numbers of them or bits broken and stuck together. Now healthy human cells have 23 pairs of chromosomes but cancer cells often miss one of some of the pairs and it's a phenomenon known as aneuploidy or they have extra chromosomes and other pairs there might be smaller scale faults like big chunks of chromosomes being copied or missing or moved around the place but it's not clear whether this just is an effect of all the other things that have gone wrong in a cancer cell or whether it's actually a key driver for the disease now until now most cancer genetics researchers have just been focusing on smaller faults in individual genes we call them mutations rather than really big changes like this but there's growing evidence that there may be some kind of pattern to the chromosome changes in cancer cells so understanding them could be the key to developing more effective strategies for treating it. So what have this bunch actually done? Well, rather than doing experiments on cancer cells in the lab, the Harvard team have used maths. And they've done mathematical analysis to look at chromosome changes in DNA taken from more than 8,000 cancer samples. They're stored in massive gene databases. In particular, they were looking at genes that drive cancer cell growth. We call them oncogenes. And they're often overactive in cancer. And also tumour suppressors. These act as the cell's breaks and they're often missing or faulty, as you might expect, in cancer cells. And they found that regions of chromosomes with many, many tumour suppressors were more likely to be missing, and areas packed with oncogenes were more likely to be copied. And regions containing particularly potent oncogenes or tumour suppressors were more likely to be copied or missing, respectively. Now, this suggests that chromosome problems could be a really key driver of cancer, rather than just a consequence. And it also calls into question what cancer researchers call the the two-hit hypothesis, of cancer, which says you need to have faults in the two copies of a cancer gene that you inherit in a cell to promote tumour growth. But the team think that these kind of big changes of a number of different genes, just losing them in one row from one chromosome or copying several oncogenes could actually have a big effect. So what does this mean in practical terms going forward? Where next? 
Well, this isn't the kind of thing that's going to change treatment for patients today. And at the moment, it's still a theoretical idea. So the researchers need to go on and do experiments with cancer cells in the lab to prove their findings are correct. So, for example, using genetic engineering to add or remove big chunks of chromosomes and see if it still drives cancer. And it's also not clear how this mechanism fits in with the other things that we already know are really important in driving cancer. So faults we know about in individual genes or changes in the activity levels of other genes. But it's certainly quite an exciting new idea to be explored. It certainly is. Thank you very much, Kat. And those two stories we've just been discussing had enormous relevance to supercomputing. And if we're to keep pace with the sorts of developments we need to see in the computer world, then we're going to have to have a step change here because we're at about the limit almost of what we can achieve with silicon chips in their present architecture, which is why IBM have announced recently their vision for the computer of the future. They want to pack a supercomputer into a sugar cube sized volume. And the way they want to do it is to solve the big problem that is the major issue for computer chip designers, and that's heat. And their solution is electronic blood. Now this sounds really macabre, perfect for Halloween, which we've just recently had, but actually it's ingenious. What they suggest is that you have layers of chips, and instead of having your processor spread out over a big area to radiate all of the heat off of it, you pack loads of them up on top of each other into your sugar cube lump type architecture, but you have tiny holes going through them, and you then pump in a fluid which goes through these tiny holes and it cools down the chip. Now you'd say, well, we already use water cooling in some computing applications. What's new about this? Aha, well, this is really clever because they're not just using this liquid to cool the chip. They're also doing what the brain, the human brain does, which is it uses blood not just to maintain the correct operating environment for the nerve cells, which are like the processors. Blood also brings the energy into your brain, doesn't it, in the form of sugar. This computer blood will bring in charged ions. They're playing around with vanadium at the moment. So you basically charge the vanadium ions and put them into what we call a certain oxidation state. And then as they go through the processor, they contact it and they discharge, changing their oxidation state onto the parts of the computer chips, giving them energy. And then you pump the stuff back out, taking away the heat and the waste product. You recharge it and put it back in again, cooler. And this means that you can pack far more processing into your chip chip space and massively beef up the power and they're saying they can get a supercomputer which is currently at the size of half a football field into potentially a desktop computer by 2060 so a little way off into the future but certainly promising I wonder if it's still going to be running Windows on it. As always, you can find more information, including the references for all the papers we discussed, on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash news. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. It's Chris Smith uh, here in Cambridge and Kat Arney, who's at the National Cancer Research Institute's annual conference, which is taking place this week in Liverpool. We've got a quiz going this week. We're asking you, given the topic this week is cancer, we would like to know what tree is very helpful to doctors who are trying to treat cancers. Uh, Marikar Jagger has got in touch on Twitter at Naked Scientists and says, is it the tree that makes quinine? The Indonesians call it Lamtoro Gung. Not quite right. We've also got Francisco Molina-Hole, who has uh, tweeted at Naked Scientist, and he is on the right lines. He's definitely got the right tree. Can you tell us, what is this tree that helps us to treat cancer? Chris at thenakedscientist.com, or, as we've said, tweet at Naked Scientist. Kat. Now, on to our main topic for the week. And as Chris said, I'm here in Liverpool at the NCRI annual conference, which brings together the whole cancer research community in the UK and beyond, from lab researchers, doctors and nurses, to patients 
Acacia groups and research charities. The conference kicked off this afternoon and over the next three days we're going to be hearing about some of the very latest breakthroughs and the challenges that still remain. Coming up later we'll be tracking down some scientists who are working on improving our ability to track down cancer. But first I'm joined by Professor Gerard Evan from Cambridge University who opened the conference with an absolutely fantastic talk about his work towards developing new approaches for treating cancers. He's doing this by finding common targets across many types of tumour. So, Gerald, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, We hear a lot about the term cancer and its different types, you know, breast cancer, lung cancer. But what is cancer? Well, different cancers are different, but by and large, tissues in our body behave themselves. They stay at the same size, and uh, if we damage them, they regenerate and they regrow and they go back to the same size. So they're very tightly controlled. Cancers are cells that uh, have lost control. They don't die when they should. They don't stop when they should. They grow, they spread, they invade, and they kill. And what's actually driving these cells to go wrong? Because they start in our body. You'd think, what's making them go rogue? Yeah, well, this is why cancer is so interesting, because for things to go wrong and cancers to have deregulation of their growth and their survival, that implies that normally these processes are very tightly regulated. And so, in a sense, understanding cancer is to understand how normal processes, the normal body, is maintained in the beautiful way that it is for so many decades. We know that there are genes which make proteins, and these proteins act as machines that move information around. And they get information from outside and they transfer it to the various places within the cell that then execute that information. And some of that information makes cells proliferate, grow. Some of it makes cells stay alive. Some of it makes cells differentiate into other cell types and move around. And when the genes that make these proteins, these engines that communicate this information, make defective versions, sometimes these engines can work without a signal. And so they send a go signal all the time or a stay alive signal all the time. The cells don't stop and the cells don't die. So we've got these genes going wrong in our cells and making them grow out of control. But we have lots of different types of cancer. So we have breast cancer and lung cancer. How different at this kind of molecular level are these different cancers? Well, we don't have that many genes. We've got about 20,000 genes. So there's a toolkit that's used again and again and again, but in slightly different variations. So the basic machinery of the cell cycle, how it cell replicates itself, is pretty much the same in every cell type. What differs is the signals that trigger that decision of the cell to replicate itself and the, the various mechanisms that stop that happening. And they will vary from tissue to tissue. Tissues have different architectures. They have different risks of infection, different risks of these mutations arising and so it varies from cell type to cell type and tissue type to tissue type in a way that we don't really yet understand. But we do know a lot of things about how the cell cycle works, how cells multiply but it still seems that although we have made progress in treating cancer particularly in recent decades there's still a real challenge here and it, it does kill hundreds of thousands of people. Why is it so difficult to treat? Well, I think part of the problem is that we know lots of the bits that go wrong, but we don't know how they fit together. It's a bit like saying, you know, you've got an orchestra and the violins don't work very well, so that doesn't sound very good. But then we would fit all the instruments together and they were all working and we'd still wonder why it was that we couldn't play a symphony. And that's because we're missing a bit, which is the conductor. So the conductor is a different type of entity to the individual components. And we're only just beginning to understand how the conductors work in this system, how, if you like, there's oversight over how everything integrates together. It's a much more complicated problem than looking at the individual bits. 
the work you're doing is actually studying one of these conductors, a gene called MYC, which we know is important in cancer, but trying to understand what it does. How are you trying to use MYC to find better ways of treating cancer? The idea is, I mean, we know that cancers, they arise spontaneously within cells in our body and they evolve. So everybody's cancer is different to everybody else's cancer. No two are the same. And actually, lots of cells within each cancer are different because they're all evolving in different directions. But there's a great deal of commonality because of this common toolkit that's used time and time again in different cells and different tissues. And so one of the ideas is that instead of looking at everything that's different from cancer to cancer, you instead focus on what's the same. This protein MYC is uh, like a conductor. It doesn't regulate individual genes and how they're expressed. It seems to coordinate them all together. And so it acts as a central regulator. And so the idea is if you if you hit that central regulator, maybe you'll hit many different types of cancer, maybe all types of cancer with just one type of drug. It sounds like science fiction, but we certainly think there's evidence to believe it's true. And I saw your talk this afternoon, and it was really exciting, some of the results that you talked about. What is your hope for the future? Do you think this could be a magic bullet? I don't know about magic bullets. I certainly think it's important to demystify cancer. There, there are lots of ideas that, you know, you can't cure cancer because it's endlessly adaptable and there's nothing we're ever going to be able to do about it to really lick it. I don't believe that's true. Cancers at their root are relatively simple types of uh, disease pathology. I just think if we think about them the right way, um, there's a good chance that we will be able to find therapies that are generally applicable against many different cancers. I'm very, very optimistic. Thanks very much. That's Gerard Evan from Cambridge University. Thank you, Kat, and thank you, Gerard. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. In a minute, we'll hear about a new technique to pick up and decode the DNA of cancers using just a blood sample from a patient, and also new ways to make cancer cells easier for doctors to spot in biopsies and other samples. If you'd like to get in touch with us to ask us a question for the programme or to have a go at our quiz, What Tree is Helping Doctors to Treat Cancer? You can tweet at Naked Scientists or email chris at thenakedscientist.com. We also have a Facebook page, of course. You can find us on there. Historically, cancer scientists have studied tumours by taking samples from them and then looking at them under the microscope, or they've used scans to pinpoint where cancers are. The problem with this is that to do either of these things requires the cancer to be of a sufficient detectable size, and by the time it is detectable, often it's usually very advanced. But now researchers at Cancer Research UK's Cambridge Institute are pioneering a way to track tumours using fragments of their DNA that they release into the bloodstream. And this means that the behaviour and the response of the cancers to treatment, and even tiny tumours, can be followed up. I went along to see Tim Forshu, who's one of the scientists behind this new technique, to see how it works. It's been known for a long time that if you take a blood sample and you centrifuge it to get rid of the cells, you get what's known as blood plasma. And if you look in this blood plasma, you'll find copies of your genome floating around cell-free. So this is your instruction manual. And it's equally been known that, at least in certain cancer patients, you'll find higher levels of this DNA floating around cell-free. And so it's been hoped that you could use this as a way of detecting or, or monitoring and analysing cancer. Is that genetic material intact? Could you read it like a book with all of the pages in sequence or is it broken up like someone's shaken the book and all the pages have come adrift? It's not intact and that's been one of the biggest challenges. So these instructions are typically something in the region of 150 to 160 letters in length. So we've got very small fragmented bits of DNA 
and very few copies of this DNA floating around in the blood. And roughly how much is in there? So in a healthy individual, you'll have somewhere in the region of 2,000 copies of your instruction manual floating around in one milliliter of blood plasma. In someone that's got cancer, you may end up with one or two copies of your cancer instruction floating around or may have many copies of your cancer instructions floating around. How are you going to read, then, all this mixed-up DNA, which is basically 160 letters long out of, what, 3 billion in the average person, and put it back together so you're putting all the pages back in the book in the right sequence? So for some time now, people have had methods where they can look for one particular fault that is known to cause cancer, or maybe a couple of faults. But the focus of our research has been to see if we can actually, as you say, read these instructions and look at large regions of the genome and try and understand what is going wrong in cancer and see if we can detect or monitor cancer through looking in the blood. So we've been doing this with an approach called next-generation sequencing. And if you come through here, then I can show you the machines that we've been using. So this is one of our next-generation sequencing machines. And the way that we use this is we first take a blood plasma sample and we extract the DNA from this. And then we use a process called the polymerase chain reaction, or PCR. And this is a process that allows you to copy just certain parts of your instruction manual. So to do this, you design something called primers, which are short bits of DNA which you target to the specific in our case, cancer gene that we would like to read. And you use these to pick out and amplify just certain parts of the instruction manual that you're keen to analyse. And then what you do is you take these amplified copies of your instruction manual and you put it onto one of these next-generation sequencing machines. And this then allows you to go through and read letter by letter all of these instructions and try and find where faults may lie, where cancer-specific changes are. So some of the genes that are in the person's cancers have got genetic spelling mistakes, for want of a better phrase, and that makes the gene misfunction go wrong, and that contributes to them having cancer or to the way their cancer behaves. Exactly right. So cancer is essentially a fault with your instruction manual, and it's where you get faults that give an advantage to a cell, this cell will then grow more than it should. And by finding these faulty instructions, we have a way of looking in blood and understanding what's going wrong in the cancer and potentially working out how big the cancer is or how well your treatment is working by quantifying how much of these faulty instructions are floating around. And so equally, if someone has a certain gene that's gone wrong that leads to their cancer not responding to a certain drug, you're going to see that, and that means you could predict that happening before the person even realises it, and so you could change the drug treatment, for example. This is certainly what we're hoping. So we need to do more research and understand in different types of cancer how much of this DNA is being released. But certainly from the earlier results that we and other groups around the world are getting, it suggests that at least in certain types of cancer, you will, as you say, be able to understand what's going wrong in the cancer before you can even necessarily see it through other processes and then start to tailor the way that you treat an individual patient. And monitor their response going forward. 
Absolutely. So once you've found these particular genetic changes that are floating around in the blood, we hope that, again, for at least certain types of cancer, you'll be able to see if a mutation is decreasing and your treatment is being successful, or if the levels are increasing and your treatment should potentially be changed, and indeed whether new mutations, new faulty instructions are appearing, suggesting that the cancer has evolved and you now need a different treatment. I suppose this must give you as a scientist a totally new insight into cancer though because where previously someone might have been able to give you a little bit of one part of one cancer from one person, now if you take just a blood sample which is going to be better for the patient, you're going to get a cross-section of potentially all of the tumours including the tumours that have spread around their body all at once. Absolutely. So the challenge is how much of this DNA is released and this is still something we're assessing. But assuming sufficient quantities are released, then as you say, it allows you to profile different parts of the tumour and equally throughout the course of an individual's treatment. So where getting a biopsy is often not even possible, with blood you can take blood samples very regularly and start to assess how a tumour is changing. It's almost like a liquid biopsy. Absolutely. So this is the term that we're starting to use for it. Tim Forshew from Cancer Research UK's Cambridge Institute. A number of people getting in touch about our quiz, which is what tree is helping doctors who want to treat people with cancers? A beautiful answer from Tony March. It's not the right one, but it deserves to win. He says the pet tree dish that they're doing their research with. Fantastic. Mark says uh, by email, chris at nakedscientist.com, is it a pine tree? Not quite right, Mark. Can Improvements in monitoring tumours can help us improve cancer treatments, but what about diagnosis? Biological markers might offer us a way to detect cancer in a sample more quickly than scanning thousands of cells to look for changes that might tell us that they're bad. Now, to find out more, we're joined by Nick Coleman, who's Professor of Molecular Pathology at the University of Cambridge. Hi, Nick. Hi there. Let's kind of start with the, the beginning. What does a good screening test for cancer look like? Well, it needs to be accurate, really, so that if a patient has a cancer, the test needs to be positive. And if a subject doesn't have cancer, then the test needs to be negative. And that balance between avoiding false positives, avoiding false negatives is the key to an effective test. Obviously, it also needs to be acceptable to the patient. You don't want to be doing something that the patient wouldn't want. It needs to be affordable. You know, there are practical issues as well, but I would say accuracy is the key. And it sounds such a simple thing, although I know it's not, you know, it needs to be accurate and only spot cancers and not spot non-cancers. But what are the problems with some of the current tests we have? What are some examples of the current screening tests that don't really answer those questions? Well, so bowel cancer screening is, is one example where at the moment people are being asked to provide a stool sample which is then tested for the presence or absence of blood. And that test is better than nothing, but it's far from perfect because there are patients with a cancer who do not have blood in their stool and there are patients without cancer who do. So we end up with fairly limited accuracy and the requirement for lots of patients who don't have bowel cancer to undergo some pretty invasive second-stage investigations to see whether or not they genuinely have a, a cancer or not. So there's, there's scope for improvement in several of the cancer screening tests that we currently have. Here in the UK, we currently have national screening programmes for breast, cervical and bowel cancer. Could we screen for all cancers and, and why don't we? It would be nice to be able to do that, but I think we have to be realistic about the, the strengths and weaknesses of what currently can be done. One example is prostate cancer, where it would be marvellous to be able to detect the cancers earlier and treat the cancers that need to be treated. But the test that is currently available that is a blood-based test for a protein that's made by prostate cells. But again, it lacks 
the ability to detect cancer in all patients. And in particular, it is prone to false positive results so that patients without cancer in their prostate have a positive result or patients who have a cancer are identified, but those cancers are not destined to do any harm to the patient. This is a problem of so-called overdiagnosis. That's a real issue in prostate cancer. And it's currently estimated that something like 50 men have to undergo cancer treatment to save one life from prostate cancer. So there's a real opportunity and uh, need for new screening approaches in prostate cancer and others too. So tell me a bit about your work. What are you trying to do to address this need? Well, we work in cancer of the cervix or screening for prevention of cancer of the cervix, where again, this, this is a test which has value, of course, but is also has opportunities for improvement because an individual cervical smear test, if a woman has a precancer in the cervix, an individual smear test is going to be positive in only about 50 to 70% of cases. And the reason for that is that currently it's a human activity which involves a subjective assessment, so decision-making by individuals trying to look for very subtle differences between a precancer cell in the cervix and a normal one. So what we've been trying to do is identify biological differences between a cancer cell and a normal cell in the cervix so that we can stain cancer cells, or precancer cells I should say, a different colour from their normal counterparts. And by being able to do that, it makes it much easier for these precancer cells to be seen. It means you can do it more quickly, more accurately, more cost-effectively. You know, there are m multiple practical benefits in being able to do that. And so the technique that we've developed is currently undergoing trials. We're very encouraged by the results of them so far. And we're hopeful that there'll be a contribution, at least from this test, to cervical screening. And just very, very briefly, um, where would you like to see the future of cancer screening? Yes, I think there will be opportunities there because as we understand more about the biology of cancer, Gerard Evans was just describing some of those features, we should be able to identify new ways to look for very specific, very characteristic features of cancer cells that are absent from normal equivalents. So that will enable us to look in blood, in urine, in, in various other body fluids, and also to have a focused imaging approach so that imagings of cancers can be more accurate and provide a greater detail and greater sensitivity for detecting them than currently happens. Oh, well, sounds really positive. Thank you very much. That's Nick Coleman from the University of Cambridge. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. And now to another new cancer-detecting breakthrough being pioneered in Cambridge by Kevin Brindle. He's developed a way to trace the location, the growth and the activity of cancers inside the body. With a very powerful magnet, he makes the nuclei at the centres of carbon atoms in things like sugars all spin in the same direction. Injected into a patient, these sugars are taken up and used by tumours where the magnetically aligned spins of their carbon atoms gives them away to a magnetic resonance MRI scanner so it can tell where in the body the tumours are. Ginny Smith went to see how it works. Conventionally, the way we assess treatment response in cancer is to look after drug treatment whether the tumour is shrinking. The problem with that approach is it can take many days, weeks or even months before you see any evidence that the patient is responding to treatment. What we've been interested in doing is imaging tumour biology, which can give a much earlier indication of whether a drug is actually affecting the tumour and whether the patient, therefore, is responding to treatment or not. With modern therapies, what we know already is that not all patients respond in the same way. And so when you give a patient a new drug, you want to find out very quickly whether that drug's working. With the techniques that we're developing, we think we can tell within hours or certainly days of whether anything's happening. 
clearly if the drug's not working in that particular patient, then you can try an alternative approach. So what kind of things can you look at within the tumour to see if it's being affected by a drug? In our work, what we do is we take a carbon-13 labelled molecule. We can inject that into the patient, and then we can image where that carbon-13 labelled molecule goes. We can image it being used by tumours, and frequently when we treat a tumour, we see a decrease in the rate at which they use this molecule. So do you put this molecule within a larger molecule? You were saying... We have recently used glucose, but we've mainly used a molecule called pyruvate which tumours rapidly take up and convert into another molecule called lactate. And how fast they do this tells us something about how healthy that tumour cell is. Now, I think you've got an example of a machine that actually creates that sample that you can inject here. Can I have a look at it? Sure. Should we go down and look at it now? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Okay, so we're walking into... Well, it doesn't quite look like a normal lab. It looks more like maybe a boiler room. <laughs> so there's two big metal shiny containers and lots of wires and hoses and things coming out and various machines with lights on. Can you talk me through what some of the intriguing looking tubes and, and knobs and things on it are? Yes, OK. So what we're looking at here, this can is a magnet. It operates at 3.35 Tesla. And to put that in context, the Earth's magnetic field is about 50 microtesla. So we're more than a million times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. That would confuse anyone around here with a compass? It certainly would. OK, so what we do is we put the sample into the bore of this magnet and then we bleed liquid helium onto the sample. So liquid helium is about 4 degrees Kelvin, minus 269 degrees centigrade. And then we put on a vacuum, and that noise you can hear is the vacuum pumps running. So by boiling off the helium, the energy that is used in that takes the temperature further down to 1.2 degrees Kelvin, and at that temperature, the spins become polarised. So what exactly do you mean by that? For example, the spins that we're interested in, carbon-13, which is an isotope of carbon, if you put those nuclei in the magnetic field, they behave like a bar magnet. Some of them line up with the field and some of them line up against the field. But you have a slight excess that line up with the field. And it's that polarisation, that slight excess, which gives rise to the signal in the MR experiment. OK, now we have a problem. We have our sample where we polarise all these spins, but it's at one degree Kelvin. The key now is, is we need to get it out very, very fast. And if we can do that, we can retain the spin polarisation. And that's what this device here does. OK, so that's sort of a long tube with what looks like some kind of gauge at the top and another tube coming off it that looks like you might be able to connect it to something. That's right. What does that do? OK, so we put a, what we call a dissolution fluid into here. We heat it up under pressure, and the temperature goes up to about nearly 200 degrees centigrade. We then open this valve here that blasts this superheated water onto our frozen sample and blasts it out of the magnet very, very quickly, so fast that we retain the spin polarization. So these nuclear spins, these carbon-13 spins that are all lined up now with the field, we keep that, but we lose it quite quickly. As soon as you bring it up to room temperature, you start to lose this polarization. So we, then we run over to this other magnet, and in this magnet, we'll have the system that we want to image. We can then inject this material. And now we have so much signal that we can image where this sample goes in the body. And we can then watch how it's used by cells in the body, how it's metabolized, how it's converted from one molecule into another. And we can watch that in real time. So this doesn't look like the kind of MRI machine I've seen in hospitals and things. No. I'm assuming you don't put a human in this uh, one. It, no, not, we'd have to be fairly slim human. The bore size of this is about nine centimetres. <laughs> but we have recently acquired a clinical device 
which is sat next to a clinical machine up in Addenbrooke's Hospital in the Department of Radiology. And in a, a year or so's time, we hope to be doing exactly this experiment that I've just described here in patients. Now, these machines, they're quite big and bulky. Is that exactly what you'd have to have in a hospital? The clinical device actually is fairly compact, standalone. It will stand just outside the room where the imaging magnet is, and it will spit out labelled material, polarised, that we can inject straight into the patient. How long do you think it'll be before we're seeing this as standard in all our hospitals? We hope that it will be in widespread use in 10 to 15 years. Wonderful news. Kevin Brindle from Cambridge University speaking with Ginny Smith. We're joined by Dr Nick Coleman, who's a histopathologist. He's interested in studying how we can pick up cancers more easily. We've been asking you for your questions. We've got one here from David Bailey, who has said, do you think that PET, this is positron emission tomography scanners, another kind of scanner, with the use of antibody-specific markers on cancers could be routinely used for screening? So the first thing to say is that wouldn't be screening. Screening is testing for the presence or absence of disease, in this case cancer, in somebody who's symptom-free. But in terms of a diagnostic workup of somebody who has symptoms or has a a known tumour, this kind of approach I think is very exciting because, as I was saying earlier, as we now understand more about the biology of tumours, we can pinpoint differences between tumour cells and normal cells that will allow us to target their presence. One example that's being looked at quite a lot is molecules that are secreted by cancer cells which provide them with more blood supply. And because we know that the tumour cells are rich in these molecules, antibodies targeted against those molecules and then used in some sort of imaging process will allow us to pick up the presence of tumours or tumour deposits very accurately and with greater sensitivity than the existing imaging methods. It's good news, isn't it? Thank you, Nick. Uh, we've also got the same question from two different places. Uh, we heard from Martin in Waterbeach. Can you use programmed viruses to target cancer cells to destroy them. And uh, that question was also echoed by Laurie Anna, who got in touch electronically on the internet and said, I'm just wondering if it's possible to use viruses as a therapy for cancer cells. Could I send in an adenovirus with a protein to stop cancer cells from growing, for example? Uh, Kat, uh, what does your work say about this? Well, this is certainly a really exciting area of therapy. It's called oncolytic viruses, kind of meaning cancer-bursting viruses. And there's a lot of different trials underway. There's lots of different types of viruses. Adenoviruses are one of the types of viruses that people are using because they infect a lot of cells and the idea is that because cancer cells as Gerard said are kind of genetically compromised they've got things wrong with them they're not working in the right way so you send in a virus that basically takes advantage of that that can only replicate in cancer cells and then it, it replicates and it bursts the cancer cells and they produce more viruses as they burst and they infect more tumor cells but the idea is they wouldn't infect healthy cells so you would only be killing the cancer and it sounds like an absolutely fantastic idea and in the lab these work really well the trouble is when you try and put them into trials in patients and sort of scale up the system they stop working so well and one of the big problems is that the immune system kicks in recognizes the virus and mops it all up so there's some interesting work going on about how you could maybe suppress the immune system so you could get the viral infection in and then kind of let the immune system go again that's being investigated in terms of gene therapy which works in a similar way you're trying to infect specific cells to deliver a payload so it's a really exciting area of research but not quite paying off yet. I went to a conference recently where actually they were saying that that immune response can be quite valuable because if you get the virus going into the tumour 
it then drives the immune system nuts because the immune system sees this cancer growing loads and loads of virus. So it reacts to the virus, but in the process also reacts to the cancer. And then the same immune response goes elsewhere in the body and starts attacking any spread of the cancer elsewhere in the body. So they think this may actually be quite constructive. Now, you're listening to The Naked Scientist. We have been talking all about cancers, and we're going to finish with our question of the week because Hannah Critchlow has been looking at these so-called superfoods that might be able to stop cancer. This week, we digest some data and get to the bottom of a question that's been providing food for thought. A few listeners, including Callind and Kate, got in touch with this. How much truth is there in certain foods having cancer-healing properties, and what are these properties? Cheers. So we often hear headlines that foods like red wine and veggie curry might decrease your likelihood of cancer. Dr Emma Smith at Cancer Research UK has this to say. We hear an awful lot in the newspapers and on TV about these so-called superfoods or groups of food that allegedly cure cancer. Um, and in fact, there just isn't any solid evidence for this at all from clinical trials. There isn't any single food or type of food that will protect you from cancer, ultimately. Um, these stories normally come from um, research carried out in the lab where chemicals purified from food or perhaps just known to be found in it for certain foods like broccoli or cabbage are shown to kill cancer cells when the chemical is put on the cancer cells grown in a dish in the laboratory. OK, but surely this lab data somehow translates to how my body reacts to particular foods. Now, the problem is, is we don't necessarily get those chemicals in that form from food, or perhaps we don't get the chemicals in the kind of doses that they're adding to the cancer cells. And when you look at the evidence from clinical trials, there's just not been any proof that these foods help protect anybody from cancer. And what about red wine? I'm sure I've heard that that's a good cancer beater. Or is that just me being a positive glass half full kind of girl? Well, red wine's an interesting one, and we are actually running uh, clinical trials in Leicester looking at, it's the chemical in red wine called resveratrol. And there's also, perhaps you've heard about curcumin and turmeric, which is the colouring they put in curry. Now, there is some evidence that those chemicals could protect us from cancer. So we're running at clinical trials to look at whether this is the case or not. But it's important that we're actually studying the chemicals in a purified form in controlled doses. We are not getting people to drink red wine and eat curry. Um, And in fact, the evidence is that the alcohol in red wine far, far outweighs any benefit you would possibly ever get from resveratrol. So we definitely are not condoning red wine to protect you against cancer. And a paper published earlier this year in the International Journal of Cancer used clever chemical analysis. And it turns out that 111 glasses of red wine need to be consumed each day in order to get the correct dose of cancer-beating chemicals to balance out the carcinogenic ethanol, which is a bit excessive an intake, even for me. So is there anything that somebody with cancer can do whilst undergoing treatment? Can they help by changing their diet? First of all, if you're undergoing treatment, treatment is quite challenging for the body. So it's important that you actually make sure your calorie intake is high enough so you can cope with the treatment. And if you are considering any major changes in your diet, whether it's to lose a bit of weight or just to eat healthier, it really is important that you consult your doctor first before making any major changes. Thanks to all those listeners, including Callind and Kate, who got in touch with the question, and also to Dr Emma Smith. Closing, we climb up the Tower of Babel to get an answer to this. Hello there, my name is Esther and I am calling from Madrid. I came back to Madrid to take care of my niece, Adriana. She is just one year old. 
Since then, I have spoken to her solely in English. So, my question is, is it okay if I speak to her in English or I am delaying her learning? So, bilingual babies, helping or hindering brain development. What do you think? Hannah Critchlow. So, if you can help, please send your answers in to chris at thenakedscientist.com. That's it for this week. Just time to tell you that yew trees were the trees that are proving very, very helpful for doctors trying to treat cancers. Well done to Ian and also Francisco, who got the answer to that one correct. Thanks also to our guests this week, Christina Archer, Gerard Evan, Tim Forshew, Nick Coleman and Kevin Brindle. And thank you to Katani for joining me. The production was by Kate Lamble. Next time we're uncovering some new treatments that are being developed for multiple sclerosis. I hope you can join us. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust and the EPSRC. My name's Chris Smith. Goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.